Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Surface. I'm Brian Levinson. I created this podcast because I love talking to interesting people to find out how they've developed their mindset for performance. So we unpack their story, find out more about their journey, and figure out how did they develop their mindset specifically for performance. We talk with CEOs, coaches, athletes, really anybody that considers themselves to be a performer to try to find out information that will help us as we continue on our journey as well. Today, we go beyond the surface with Laron Profit. Laron is a former basketball player. He played professionally in the NBA for the Los Angeles Lakers and the Washington Wizards. He also played overseas. And then he coached for the Orlando Magic for a number of years as well. Today, he works for the Jordan brand, where he interacts with a lot of their top athletes on the basketball side and the football side. So he's constantly interacting with some of the best basketball players in the world. Laron also played his college ball at University of Maryland, which is where he got introduced to me. I went to camps, basketball camps at University of Maryland, and I actually talked to Laron a little bit about that in this podcast. He's a little bit older than me, so I grew up really watching Laron and uh, studying his game and learning about how he played the game and cheering him on as a Maryland basketball fan. Uh, Laron is such a thoughtful guy. Uh, when we first met a little over a week ago, we just went back and forth on great books, on concepts, on ideas, on frameworks for mindset, and really thinking about how the best of the best think about performance and think about developing their mindset for performance. So as you'll hear in this conversation, Laron has been exposed to some of the best athletes in the world, specifically when he was with the Washington Wizards with Michael Jordan, uh, and then when he played in Los Angeles with the Lakers with Kobe Bryant. So he'll tell a story about Kobe. He'll talk about MJ and what he learned from MJ. And he'll also talk about just his journey in the NBA and what he learned along the way and some of his shortcomings and some of the things he's worked on uh, in his career to develop his own mindset and what he tries to share with some of the athletes that he works alongside of. Laurent is just a deep thinker. He is a knowledgeable guy. He's always trying to learn. He's a lifelong learner. And he is just a, a passionate guy when it comes to human development. So I know you will really enjoy this conversation with Laurent. If you like it, feel free to share it with somebody. I know a lot of people on here are Maryland Terrapin fans. If you want to share it via social media, I would forever be grateful. And I appreciate everybody that's been listening to this podcast to this point. It's been a labor of love for me. And I'm just trying to get a little bit, little bit better each time I do it. So I appreciate all the feedback that people have sent my way. So without further ado, I present Laurent Profit. And as we go beyond the surface with Laurent, I encourage you to go beyond the surface with yourself as well. Laurent, so we met about a week ago, and when we met, I was really blown away by how thoughtful you are about the mental side of, of basketball and the mental side of performance. Uh, where does that come from, from for you? Where is that curiosity, or when did you start on sort of that path of trying to figure out more about the mental side of basketball? Yeah, I think for me, it was always, you know, you, you play the game, you grew up watching the game, you see your favorite players, and you want to emulate them and you want to hit big shots and all those things. But then as you begin to progress, players get better. You start to recognize the playing field is a little bit more even. And in some cases, you feel like you're looking up at competition. So I was always curious as to what was going to give me an edge, what was going to help me become better. And I think as I got older, especially in my 20s, I started to really try to understand what was the edge that I could have that would give me an upper hand. And I had a book that was given to me by Grant Hill book called The Inner Game of Tennis. And I started reading it, and it just really opened my eyes to a lot of things that I probably weren't, I probably wasn't paying as much attention to before, just in terms of the mental side of the game, how you talk to yourself, your inner monologue, and all the things that you, I'm sure, hear about on a daily basis. So that was probably the start of it. And it just got me really to thinking, 
how can I improve this part of my game and how can I explain this to other people so it can help them as well. That book has made its way around basketball locker rooms. Why do you think that is? What, why do you think that book has resonated with so many basketball people? I know Steve Kerr reads it a couple times a year. Uh, it is Pete Carroll in, in football and the, the Seattle Seahawks is also, he, he loves that book. What do you think about that book? Why does that resonate with basketball players and football players? Well, I think there's a couple of things in there that really everybody from sports can identify with. One of the first things that caught my attention was, do you get frustrated that you don't play as well in the games as you do in practice? And it's like, yeah, I do. I wonder why that is. Well, you know, why is it in practice when maybe the stakes, stakes aren't as high? Do I play at a certain level? And then the game starts, I don't always feel I play at that level. So I think that was one of the first things that jumped out. And I think the other thing that really resonates with people is trying to figure out, okay, what is it that I'm going to need to play at my highest level consistently? Um, obviously, tennis and basketball are different sports, but I think the premise of wanting to play at your best consistently, and everybody has an idea in their minds of how they think they should play, but when you don't play like that consistently, it's frustrating. And I think that book, more so than any other book I've read, kind of taps into that idea and helps you tangibly figure out how to change that. Yeah, I think that question of what do you look like when you're at your best is so important. And you mentioned the word consistency. I think a lot of people talk about consistency and they think about consistency being I'm going to make my shots or I'm going to grab rebounds or I'm going to get steals or assists or however they value themselves. But I really think consistency has to do with how you set your mind and the way in which you set your mind. And what do I look like when I'm at my best? Am I at my best when I'm pumped up or am I at my best when I'm calmed down? Am I at my best when I'm really self-critical or when I'm encouraging? Am I at my best when uh, somebody is talking trash or when it's clear? And I think answering those questions are so valuable and it's really building self-awareness, right? Like being aware of what I look like when I'm at my best. So what did you look like when you were at your best, whether it was in college or high school or pro, those moments that felt like you were in the zone or that flow state, what did those look like for you? Yeah, and I think you use a great word, that, that mythical place we call in the zone. And I think the book really helps you try to figure out what is it or where am I? What is my mind doing when I'm in that place or I feel like I'm in that place? And for me, what I realized was when I'm playing the game without regard for stats or opinions or how many points I've scored or haven't scored, I'm at my best. When I'm just playing, having fun, in the moment, not necessarily overthinking or overjudging, you know, there's this thing where we always say, you know, you know, don't think, but it's like hard. You can't just turn your brain off. So it's like, what does that really mean? But what the book really explains and shows you is not about not thinking. It's about focusing your thoughts in one specific pattern. So they're not all over the place, you know, and for me is when I'm just focused on one thing, for me, that thing became, I want to compete as hard as I can for as long as I'm out here. That to me was the definition of consistency. So that became my standard bearer. If I've played as hard as I can possibly play, I don't care about what the stats look like. I don't even care about really if I won or lost that to me was considered a win, a victory. And that's kind of how I changed the course 
uh, of how I saw the mental game. Walk me back a little bit. So when you were in high school, were you able to play freely? Were you able to find that space and that place where you were just competing and focused on effort? And when did that not come through to you? When did there become maybe some clutter where you did get distracted? So walk me through maybe where you were, felt like you were your most free and where you felt you were, you were your most cluttered. The, I, high school was without question the most free I've ever been. It was, we won 22 straight games my junior year in high school and we weren't the most talented bunch, but we just played with a fearlessness you know, we we just we didn't know how we were going to win a game, but we just knew at some point we were going to find a way to win it. And I think that was like the most fun free time that I can remember from a basketball standpoint for me. I think the point where I the most frustrated I've ever been was my senior year at, at Maryland. And I think a large part of that was because of the expectations. You know, the pro scouts are in the stands. Everyone's saying you should be a first round pick. You should be a top 10 pick. You came back to school. You guys win a national title. And I started to place these expectations and burdens on myself that made the game not fun anymore. And it reflected in how I played. And even though I think towards the middle of the year, I kind of righted the ship, I didn't have fun. I wasn't enjoying the game. I wasn't doing what I said I did in high school. I didn't play with freedom. I didn't play with fearlessness. I played almost as if I needed to be perfect. I played with fear, fear of failure, fear of not meeting expectations, maybe the possibility of what if I don't get drafted? What if I don't get drafted as high as I say, or they say I should? And all of those things kind of took away the joy for the game uh, that made me successful in the first place. You said something earlier that really resonates with me, which is you have to think. You're like when, when athletes tell me, oh, I'm not my best when I don't think. I always, I always call BS on them because you, you have to think. And the other thing that I find is a lot of times people that are really bright they think, oh, I wish I was just stupid and I didn't have to think at all. Um, <laughs> but if you look at guys when they do get into that space of flow or the zone or really being where they want to be as a player, they're just thinking about the right things. And you need your brain to be elite. You need your brain to be great. But the brain does get in the way and the mind does get in the way because it does go into what if mode, fear mode, because that's the number one job of the brain is to keep us safe and to protect us. So it's going to go to that place. But I always use a phrase, think like a pro and play like a kid. And uh, what I find is a lot of my high school athletes, they, they play with freedom, but they don't always make good decisions. So they might, you know, uh, play too fast and get a charge taken, or they might shoot a contested three, or, you know, they might do things that aren't smart, or they might take um, a harder route uh, rather than an efficient route to the basket. So uh, I think pros can think the game in a way that kids can't. But I think kids sometimes play with that freedom and fearlessness that you're talking about that pros sometimes forget about. And so a great question I ask pros all the time is like, what were you like when you were 12 years old and you were playing on the playground? And you were just balling. And, you know, it was whoever's next has next and I'm going to play and I'm going to compete. So when you mesh those two together and you're thinking like a pro but you're playing like a kid, that's probably where you're at your best. Um, did you ever have that moment as a pro basketball player where you felt like, all right, now you're thinking the game the right way, your mindset is where you you want it to be but you're still playing with that freedom yeah I, I think when I got to the Los Angeles Lakers and unfortunately my season was cut short because of an injury but I just remember in training camp just telling myself like you have nothing to lose you, you got to stop playing as if the world as if the world only survives if you play well 
you know, I was putting this unbelievable pressure on myself to play at a certain level as if people's lives depended on my performance. And I had to get rid of that and just realize it's a game. At the end of the day, for all the, the fanfare and the entertainment and all the things that come with it, it's still a game. And you're not going to be homeless tomorrow. You're not going to lose your house if you don't play well. And I think when I started to think like that and enjoy the game and look at the game, like you said, from a kid's standpoint, um, that's when I played my best. And I think part of what helped me do that, I went overseas for a couple of years. And when you look up and you're playing in an arena with 2,000 fans that don't know your name, they don't speak your language, they're smoking cigarettes in the arena, it gives you a different perspective. And you're like, man, I'm, I'm halfway around the world. Nobody I know is in this building. You can be as free as you want. Nobody cares if you score 30 or if you score five. And I think that perspective helped me when I got back to the, to the NBA because then I realized the world doesn't revolve around whether or not you win or lose or have a good game or a bad game. I want to go outside of basketball. So tell me what life was like. I know you're from Charleston, South Carolina. Tell me what life was like growing up there, family, friends. Um, walk me through your childhood a little bit. Yeah, I, I mean, my mom had me when she was very young. You know, I'm the story's been told a million times all over the world. Uh, mom was pretty young. Uh, we came to a tough situation. It was me, my mom, and my grandmother. We made it work. We, we figured it out somehow. We survived. And then my mom got married. Uh, when I was seven years old, and her husband was in the military. So then we got a chance to travel around. So I'm in, I go from Charleston, South Carolina, around all my family and all the people that I'm familiar with. And the next thing you know, I wake up and I'm in New Mexico. <laughs> and I'm like, what? And all of a sudden, I talk weird. And people, like, the, w the way I say my words, people look at me funny. So it was like a huge adjustment. And the one thing that I had was the basketball court. Because when you're the new kid around town, all you need is a basket and a hoop. So I would just go to the basketball court, and I would stay out there for hours, and it became a great way to meet people. You know, one or two kids come along, and it's like, hey, let's play 21. Before long, it's seven kids out there, and then it's like, yeah, this kid's pretty good. What's your name? And then you have five friends, you know, and like, we'll, we'll meet here tomorrow at the same time. So I ended up in New Mexico, and then we went to Panama. Then I went back to Charleston for a little bit with my grandmother and then we uh settled in delaware for high school and so i stayed in delaware i went to school there and then i got a scholarship obviously to maryland uh, played at maryland for four years greatest institution in the country in my opinion uh but i'm biased of course uh, and then i ended up getting drafted by the orlando magic but traded to the washington wizards before you yeah uh, stepdad in your life, uh, what was it like being around someone who's a military guy? Um, sounds like you go from not having a male figure in your life to then having a male figure. Can you, can you just give us some more color on that? Yeah, I went from having no males. It was my mom, my grandmother, my two aunts. Uh, and then all of a sudden she gets married and I got a military dude barking out orders every day. So it was like, that took a minute to get used to. <laughs> but it was cool. I, I think the best thing about that was having somebody around that looked like you, that have been through your experiences. You know, your mom's a very powerful force in your life, especially when you're sing when she's a single mom. But it was good to have somebody who kind of understood, like, nah, he's a boy. That's how boys think, or that's how boys act. Okay, relax, you know, he's okay. So that was really good. And just having somebody around that could relate to the experiences of growing up and try to figure things out on the run. So that was a positive for me, you know, and I, I look back at those years and I'm grateful to have that because I know a lot of people they don't have that experience, so I was grateful for it. And I think it helped me try to become a little bit more organized 
having a military dude around because, you know, he would come through with the white gloves checking my room to make sure it was straight. So to this day, I'm kind of a neat freak. You know, I keep things pretty organized. And what about moving? So it sounds like you had to adjust and basketball helped you uh, make friends or adapt. But it sounds like you moved a lot to different cultures, to different areas. Uh, what was that like for you as a kid? It was it was weird, man, because, you know, like I said, I went from just a neighborhood with everything around me was familiar. Everything I needed in my life the first seven years was in, was within four blocks. You know, that was my world, was four blocks. Family, friends, the cousins that weren't cousins, but you called them cousins because your families knew each other for so long. You know, so all of these things were right there. Then all of a sudden I'm halfway across the country and I don't know anybody. So I think basketball was just a beautiful bridge for me to meet people, for me to find out People are a lot alike. You know, we always talk about the differences between people, but I found out that we all have a lot of similarities as well, especially when it comes to sports. You know, sports is a great way for us all to find common ground. You know, you want to win, you want to play well. When you're on a team, everybody roots for each other. So it was a great way for me to meet friends and kind of learn about people, you know, in a way that was not confrontational. So that was a great part of the traveling. And it taught me how to make friends. You know, as I got older and you go to college and, you know, you're in the NBA, you learn how to meet people and how to greet people and you become a lot more adept at making friends along the way. So that's been a, a bonus for me in my life. Yeah, especially the career that you chose, I imagine, being able to adjust to new environments, new circumstances, new cultures, new situations. You talk about going overseas where people don't know you, they don't know your language, they don't look like you. Um, so I would imagine that that in some ways was a blessing, but at the time probably you, w you would have been down to just stay in, in Charleston where, and, and be grounded there because most kids uh, don't love the idea of change. Most adults don't love the idea of change. Nah. Absolutely. You know, me and my mom laugh about it now. You know, we're like, it was the best thing in the world for you. But at the time, I was miserable. You know, I wanted to stay with my grandmother. I didn't want to leave my cousins and my family and my aunts and my uncles. And I was like, why do I have to go? <laughs> you got married. <laughs> but, you know, at the end of the day, it was something that when I look back on, it was a turning point in such a positive way. Because like you said, the experiences that, that I've had as an adult, that has come into play. You know, traveling and being amongst different cultures and different perspectives and being able to adjust and to blend and to accept people for who they are and not make preconceptions because they're from a different country or a different color or speak a different language. So having to do that as a child, it made the transition for me as an adult so much easier. So, you know, you look over the course of your life and some of the things that at the time you thought weren't really in your best interest, they prepare you for something that you probably didn't even see coming later on down the line. And you mentioned that University of Maryland is the best institution in the world and that you're biased. How did you end up at that institution? Obviously, you're playing in Delaware, so not, not far away. Yeah. Um, but what was that recruiting process like, and, and why, why did you end up there? You know, after my junior year, I went to Nike camp, and I was one of the 120 invited guests there, and some of the best players in the world were there. And I think that was the first time the outside world really got a great look at me. And all of a sudden, my phone was ringing off the hook. My mom was like, who are these people calling from, you know, who is, who is such and such? And who, I'm like, Ma, he's a big-time coach. You should know. She's like, I don't care. Just tell him to call my house after 8 p.m. So, <laughs> um, you know, that was kind of what happened. It, it went from a local kid doing well to all of a sudden on a national scale. I'm getting recruited by major conferences and major coaches and major schools. I think the thing about Maryland at the time – Joe Smith was there, and they were really on the rise, and people were really talking about what Gary was doing at the time and how the program had been revived from the Lynn Bias era and 
all of these things that were happening. And I'll be honest, initially, I wanted to go to Carolina. Hmm. Carolina was a school that I wanted to go to, partly because I just didn't like Duke. But I loved Dean Smith, and I loved the way they played. And, you know, you, you watch Carolina play, and it was just like, regimented and organized and it looked so cool you know it was just like man i want to be a part of that but they came down to see me um practice my i think the my junior year or beginning of my senior year and bill gusbridge rest in peace he told me he said listen we love you we would love for you to join carolina but we're recruiting one other wing and if he signs with us we're not taking any more wings but if he doesn't then you're our guy so i was like who could they possibly be thinking about it's better than me well, the guy they signed was Vince Carter. That's so. the name that was popping in my head. And, and like, it's funny, Laurent, when you're telling that story, in my head, I'm seeing Vince Carter do 360s. Like, that, yes. that's where my head went is, like, yeah. all right, he's talking about a wing around that age. Yep, it's probably that guy. He's doing 360s, and they probably want him. So I, Yeah, you know, so I was like, ah, I can't be mad at you, you know. But it was funny because that summer, me and Vince had been on the same team in Nike camp. So I was like, okay. I can't be too mad. He's pretty good. So, you know, obviously that didn't work out. But when I started to look at Maryland closely, the one thing that it gave me was you'll get an opportunity to play against Carolina and Duke every year, and you could be a part of something in its infancy stages. You go to Carolina, you're just in another long line of outstanding players, outstanding teams. You'll be forgotten. You go to Duke, same thing. But if you go to Maryland and you're a part of building something or a part of winning I don't know if you'll ever be forgotten. So that was something that really resonated with me and made my decision a lot easier. And I grew up I grew up 20 minutes from, from College Park, Maryland, and I had a T-shirt growing up that said Joe Smith, and then on the back it said Enough Said. Um, <laughs> and, like, uh, I think people don't realize, like, what that group of guys, you know, the Dwayne Simpkins, Johnny Rhodes, Keith Booth, uh, Joe Smith, you know, uh, and then, like, growing up around that time, which is when I was really into basketball, everyone in the area really became big Maryland fans. And uh, it was, it was, it, it was sort of foundational. And then your crew came in and then led the found set the foundation for the next group that ended up, you know, winning uh, a, a championship. So um, what was life like for you at college park? And, and just talk about that. Uh, those, those years. It was phenomenal. Just the, the passion and the support that our fans gave us for the four years I was there was just phenomenal. Every game, just running out of that tunnel in Coldfield House, 120 degrees, the, the arena filled every single – I mean, even when the students were home, the arena was just filled to capacity. Student section was just amazing. It was one of the great moments of my life. I look back on that moment and those times were great admiration and love and respect for the support that we received. And I think as a college athlete, when you sign to go somewhere, part of it is you want to be a part of something special. And I really felt, and I still feel that I was a part of something special. The, the love that people have for Maryland basketball is amazing for me. You know, I'm in the airport two weeks ago in Orlando flying out and somebody comes up to me and just says, Hey man, I watched you when you're at Maryland. You're amazing. And it's, you, you, I get that all the time, and it's not because I was such a great player. I just think the people there and the fans and the students have such a great respect and admiration for Maryland basketball that we as players get, you know, we get rewarded for that. And I'm proud to say, you know, Juan and Lonnie were freshmen uh, my senior year. So I think part of what they learned 
while they were with us was how important it was to carry this legacy on and to make sure it stayed strong. That idea of being part of something bigger than yourself, uh, was that something that was instilled in you from mom or from a coach? Uh, what, where did that come from? You know, I think as you grow and you mature, I think my high school team was really, like, big for me because, like I said, we won 22 straight games. We lost in the state finals to a better team. But along the way, just the idea of everybody being on one page was phenomenal. I mean, practice, games, in school, everyone looked out for each other. Everyone had each other's back. Everyone was rooting for each other. Now, obviously, some guys wanted to play more. Some guys wanted more shots. But when the game started, you always felt like everybody was pointed in the same direction. And that that was just such a powerful thing to me to be a part of at such a young age and to see it. And I was a star, obviously. But just to see how everybody was excited after we won. Everybody was excited before we played a big game. It really left a strong impression on me. And I was like, man, I want to be a part of this beyond this. And I think that's where that kind of that, that idea really was implanted in my mind was when you're a part of something and it's bigger than you and everyone's on board, there's really no limit to what you can do. Did you play AAU ball? Uh, yeah. What was that like? Man, you know, the, the thing about AAU basketball for me was, you know, going to high school in Delaware, you read magazines about the top players in the country. Or you, back then we had this show called Scholastic Sports America where they would do profiles on guys. So you would see certain guys they did profiles on, and they look larger than life. AU basketball, you show up to a tournament, and they're there. And there's Stephon Marbury. There's Kevin Garnett. There's Chauncey Billups. There's Paul Pierce. There's Kobe. There's Felipe Lopez. So all of a sudden, you go from reading about these guys or watching on TV, to all of a sudden, you're lined up playing, you know, an AU game against them. So AU basketball was a great thing for me because it also was a barometer for me to measure where my game was. So when I came back home in the summer, I was like, hey, I thought I was really good, but I found out that I've got a lot of work to do. So that was probably the best thing about it was just being able to compete against the best players in the country. Yeah, two thoughts. One, uh, people like to like beat on AAU basketball and say, oh, it's ruining basketball, it's doing all this. You talk to any kid who plays AAU basketball, they love it. Man, like they, they get to play with an all, it's basically an all-star team of people in their area. They get to meet all these kids from different schools and, and develop relationships with them. And then to your point, like they just get to compete with the best in the world uh, or the country. And, um, you know, I, I think, uh, it gets a bad rap and I, I think, um, you know, it, it has done a lot of good for basketball and it's easy to point at the flaws and look, there are flaws. I'm not going to sit here and say that it's perfect, but nothing's perfect in this world. Right. So, um, that was my first thought. My second thought was the list of guys who you said, uh, you wanted that you were excited to play against and you listed Garnett and Marbury and Pierce and Kobe. And the last one that you mentioned was Felipe Lopez. And it's an amazing thing because the hype on Felipe Lopez at that time was through the roof, right? The next Jordan. Um, and it's also a good reminder for all of us that hype is hype. It doesn't necessarily correlate to uh, fulfilling potential or success and all these other things. And I don't know, Felipe, and Felipe played in the NBA for, for a decent amount too. And he, re he reached a level that certainly 
I never reached and, you know, most people don't reach. So it's not like he's a failure. Um, But it is a good reminder for all of us that like you don't ever really arrive and there is no arrival. And I think with Felipe, there was like an arrival and he was sort of (laughs) before LeBron and and before like the hype machine really got. I remember Felipe Lopez being the guy. And um, it's just a good reminder for all of us, especially for high school kids who might listen to this, who are, are becoming McDonald's All-Americans or are getting recruited by a Maryland to remember that like that's just a step in the journey that you don't necessarily arrive. And I would imagine the greats that you were around throughout your career never really truly believed that they arrived. They always were trying to get better and always trying to evolve. Um, so that was something else that sort of resonated with me. Um, yeah. Going to uh, the Wizards. So here you are. You're at Maryland. You have a great career there. You help raise the bar on the program, uh, and you help set them up for future success. Um, and you know, I think I'm a few years younger than you, so I remember watching you. And when when you when people watched you, they always saw a six five, six six wing can do a little bit of can do a little bit of everything. And um, you know, I think a lot of people were like, "Yeah, his game should translate to the next level." Um, Going to Washington and being in a similar community that you were in at Maryland, what was that like for you going to the arena? People, you know, I would bet a third of that arena are Maryland fans. Um, What was that like for you sort of staying in the D.C. community and and what was that experience like? Initially, it was great. You know, you're thinking, hey, I'm going to be able to live 10 minutes from where I went to school, go up to campus and still see the hotties up there and I'm I'm not too far removed. So you're thinking it's great. The thing that was tough, though, was the Wizards, just the losing. Not only are we losing, I'm not really playing. So those two things are drastically different. I leave Maryland, we're winning. We go to Sweet 16. We're a top five program. I'm playing a lot. And then all of a sudden, I end up in Washington. We're losing 60 games a year, and I'm barely playing. So it's kind of like you run out the tunnel, and it's like, gosh. Year. So I the hard part to adjust to was just the losing. And the fans in in Washington, D.C. were nowhere near as passionate about the Wizards as they were about Maryland. You know, just the energy in the building was much different. They were, I used to say, they were actually more invested in the opponents, you know, seeing who the other team's star was than they were in the Wizards. And, and part of that is just the Wizards weren't very good. So I think initially it was a great, great feeling, but I think as time wore on, it became tough. It was frustrating. You want to play. You want to win. You want to be a part of something where you're winning. So I think it kind of lost its luster pretty quickly. But it was still good to be around an area where people recognize you and remember what you did at college. But it was just hard to know, you know, I'm in the NBA now and we're losing and I'm not really being able to contribute. Was that the first time in your career where you weren't contributing? Other than the beginning of my freshman year at Maryland when Coach Williams wouldn't play me. <laughs> which I still hold a grudge over to this day. But <laughs> Coach Williams, if you're listening, man, I, I need an explanation. But, no, I, I think that was the first time, you know, for me as a player to not be able to contribute, to not be able to play and be in a game to help your team win. Yeah, it was tough. You know, it was hard. But a lot of guys go through that when you get to the NBA. You think it's the exception, but it's really the norm. It's really the exception when a guy comes in and plays right away. So at the time, I think I was a little spoiled and a little naive as a 21-year-old just to understanding how professional sports work. And it is interesting as you think about, like, D.C., which is 
the area I'm from and I've been around and there's an amazing thing that happens in high school basketball in this area is through the roof. It's as good as anywhere in the country. And then you've got Georgetown, Maryland, GW, uh, American University, George Mason. You've got uh, a lot of college basketball uh, in the D.C. area as well. And um, yet yeah, the Wizards for years just weren't good. And like <laughs> there wasn't there wasn't really any hope. Uh, other than like when they brought in the Chris Webber, Juwan Howard, uh, Rod Strickland team. And then that team, like they broke up almost right away. And I actually spoke to Rod Strickland about that at one point. He, and he just told me like, yeah, that group had to be broken up for a lot of different reasons. Um, but uh, people don't realize like they won in the 70s. I think they actually had the best record of any NBA team in the 70s. They were they won a championship and they were very good in the 70s. But my whole life in the eighties and the nineties, like they were bad and, they, and there wasn't, it was, yeah, it was a constant in and out of players. Yeah. You know, and that's the one thing that I've noticed about any professional sports team is when there's no consistency, you're not going to be very good. Consistency from the top down ownership, management, player wise, when you constantly see teams shuffling guys in and out, they're probably not going to be very good. You look at the, two premier sports teams in either league right now, the NFL, the Patriots, and the NBA, the Spurs, the constant has been that ownership has been consistent, management has been consistent, players have been consistent. And the Wizards in the 80s and 90s, you just saw a revolving door of players coming in and out. And I think that's part of the reason why they couldn't find any sustained success. Yeah, I think I think you hit on it earlier when you said, you know, as a pro, if you're afraid to fail and you're worried and you're thinking about what if I get cut, what if this happens, what if that, it's very hard to play that way. And I think it's the same way for a front office. Like if they're worried about their job, if they're making moves to try to keep their job rather than build over a long period of time, it's very hard to be successful. And you look at the teams, um, you know, let's just use the Spurs as an example because they're the easiest one. You know, trading George Hill for a first round pick, you know, a lot of GMs wouldn't have the balls to do that because George Hill was Tony Parker's understudy and was a contributor, but they traded him. And I mean, they turned that into Kawhi Leonard. Um, now, did they think that Kawhi would be what he is now? Probably not, but you have to make moves like that to take risks and, and take risks. And I think uh, performing is the same way. You have to be a bit of a risk taker. You have to be willing to have the ball in your hands and miss a bunch of shots. You have to be willing to uh, get creative and try something new uh, on the court. Because if you play it safe, eventually someone's going to pass you and they're going to do it better and they're going to innovate and they're going to evolve. And you look at the Warriors right now, and look, there's no no one's going to deny their talent. But the other thing is they were innovative, and Steve Kerr was innovative. And when he got there, you know, the big move that he made was – putting Draymond in for David Lee and saying Draymond's going to space the floor. Uh, David can't do that for us. And when that happened, they really did start taking off. And there are other factors that go into it as well, but that's innovation. That's fearlessness. Um, that is providing someone, empowering them with the uh, opportunity to make a decision and let them go with it, knowing that it'll backfire sometimes. It's not always going to work out. So I think that's, I think that's accurate. Would you spend time with Jordan when you were with the Wizards? Yes. So give us some insight into what that was like. Um, and then, and then you're, you're also in Los Angeles with Kobe. So yeah. you think about the last 30 years in, in sports, two of the most mentally strong humans uh, that played any sport, Kobe and MJ. Uh, forget the talent for a second. What was it like just being around them from a mental standpoint? 
Well, I think the one thing that they both share, you just said, is fearlessness. I think they both were prepared to deal with whatever fallout there came with their performances, whether people agreed with it, didn't agree with it, won, lost, made the right play. People said they didn't make the right play. I think mentally they were always prepared to deal with whatever the fallout would be. And I think part of it is me and you've talked a lot about they were prepared. They always were prepared going into a game to play at their absolute best. Now, that doesn't mean you're always going to play at your absolute best, but I think their belief and their preparation gave them the confidence to say, hey, I've done this so much in my preparation that I'm willing to live with whatever the results are, win, lose, or draw. And I think that's the common trait that I could see in both of those guys. It's just an unbelievable, unwavering confidence in their abilities, but not because of their skill level, mm -hmm. but it's because of their work ethic. I think their confidence comes from their preparation. And because of that preparation, I think they looked at situations on the basketball court and expected to succeed, understanding that if it didn't work, I'll try again the next time. And I think being around them, that was the one thing that I could constantly see was a commonality or a common thread in the way they thought. Yeah, you know, character is sort of the bedrock, right? Like, what's my character? What are my values? What are my morals? Like, what do I believe in? What are my self-beliefs? Skills can be adapted. They can be changed. They can be improved upon. Uh, so a guy can go from being a 30% three-point shooter to becoming a 40% three-point shooter. So if you believe in yourself, you believe that you can get better and improve. And I think that's often what people need to go toward. What are my self-beliefs and how do I integrate those self-beliefs into what skills I'm trying to acquire? And when we have clarity around our self-beliefs, we can create a roadmap uh, for our, our, our abilities or our talent or our skills and we can, we can improve on it. Um, the other thing that I think is, is so interesting is when they do uh, polls and studies on what do people fear more than anything, um, they say they fear public speaking. Um, public speaking is a bigger fear for people than death. Um, <laughs> to some people, it is death. <laughs> right? Like, so when they ask them, when they do these polls, public speaking finishes one and death is, is further down. And to me, it's, it's one of the most important things that I've learned, which is that fear of embarrassment is such a massive fear. Absolutely. Uh, and we are, we're wired that way because if you think about it back in the day when we were in tribes, if we embarrassed ourselves, we're kicked out of the tribe and then we have to fend for ourselves and eat and take care of ourselves. And part of the reason you didn't want to move from Charleston was a fear of embarrassment that you would go to another community and you wouldn't be accepted. Um, Yep. You, you won't fit in. So that is wired in us. It's, it's, it's a defense mechanism to keep us safe. And to your point, those two guys were not afraid to embarrass themselves because they knew they'd done all the work. And if they failed at it and they embarrassed themselves, well, then they'll have a roadmap and they can go back to their work ethic, plug it in, and then come up with a new game plan for how to be successful in the future. Um, so I think that that tug is important. That humble preparation and confident performance is, is so valuable and immensely important for a great athlete. But yeah, those two guys, I would imagine that there wasn't a whole lot of fear of embarrassing themselves. Um, you know, there, there might've been fear of, 
of not winning, or there might have been fe- there might have been other fears that come and go. But generally speaking, they learn to keep that fear of embarrassment at bay and sort of tame that tiger, if you will. Yeah, and I think that's a very important part. I think it's important for people to realize it's not that they didn't have fear or they didn't have doubt or they didn't have moments where they questioned. It's just that they were able to manage it in a way that it didn't become the the focus. It didn't become a, a hindrance to what they were doing. They used it and turned it into fuel. And that's why when you hear them both talk, you always hear the word challenge. Hmm. They look at it as a challenge. It's challenging. Uh, it's a it's an amazing challenge. Uh, you know, it's going to be a, a real challenge. Because what they do is they take this fear or this doubt and they say, you know what? Well, let's see if I can do it. They don't run from it. They run towards it. And I think there's a quote that said uh, something about confidence isn't the absence. Courage isn't the absence of fear. It's going through the fear in spite of how you feel. And I think those two guys are probably great examples of that. I'm sure at some point when Michael was in Chicago, he was doubting whether he was going to win a title. But what he did was say, you know what? Then I'm going to go lift. I'm going to go get stronger. I'm going to get a better jump shot. I'm going to become a better passer. And he used that fuel to become a challenge to get better. And I I think that's why it's so important that how we phrase things is important. How we talk to ourselves. Me and you talked about this a lot when we were uh, last week. But how we talk to ourselves, how we pose the situation to ourselves holds a lot of weight because our minds will then adapt that type of thinking and how it, you know, goes about its business. So those two guys were just really great at turning around fear or doubt into a challenge and something they use as fuel. Yeah, we spend more time talking to ourselves than talking to anybody else. So Absolutely. Absolutely. When we realize... I, Go I ahead. I an interesting thing. Um, when I, was, I played tennis a lot and, and the guy told me, I didn't even realize this. He said, do you realize that the average tennis point is somewhere between seven and nine seconds? but you'll have 20 seconds in between each point where nothing's happening. And it's that 20 seconds that you have to master if you're ever going to be really good at the seven to nine that happen. And I was like, wow, I never even thought about it like that. I love that. Golfers are the same way. It's, you know, they spend no time over the ball, like, like very few time actually hitting it, but they're walking to their ball for so much time. It's, it's pretty crazy. Um, the other, you mentioned challenge and I heard a quote this morning. I was listening to a podcast with Quinn Snyder, the Utah jazz head coach. And he said, um, competition is the mirror. And I love that, which is essentially like competition is, is between me and me. Um, and I, you, in, in relation to the idea of challenge versus threat, there has been really cool studies on the idea of when we interpret things as a challenge, we go toward them. When we interpret things as a threat, we run away from them. That's a good one. I like that. And so, like, if you, like, to your point, if you can train your mind to say, anytime there is a situation, let's embrace it as a challenge rather than a threat. Uh, because it's very hard to perform if we feel like we're threatened. Um, but challenge, it's embracing it. It's saying, let's go toward it. Um, so there's a great book uh, out called The Obstacle is the Way. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. You read I that? I read his other one, The Ego is the Enemy. Yeah, like that guy, Ryan Holiday, is just really doing great stuff with stoicism and um, just an in-depth guy, a pretty young guy. Uh, but The Obstacle is the Way is about all these concepts of going toward the obstacle rather than running away from it. And I think, to your point, if we can go toward the challenge rather than thinking of it as a threat, uh, we're going to be more successful. Okay, yeah. I, Go, go ahead. 
I want to say one thing about that because it, you really got me thinking about that. I, and I think that plays such a huge role because when we see stuff as a threat, we also envision that it could take stuff away from us. When you go through a challenge, it adds to you. Ooh. You know what I'm saying? I love it. I think that that's a very important part of it. Anything is threatening us, we think it's going to take from us. When it's a challenge, we know it adds to you. And I think that's why it's such a big thing that we phrase it in a way and it's challenging and not a threat. So I, I just, you got my mind thinking, so I just had to throw that no, in. No, I love it. I think that's, that's spot on. And it's one of the reasons why I don't believe that adversity makes people. I think how they respond to adversity makes people. Uh, there are plenty of people that go through crap in their life that don't learn anything from it. Yeah. Uh, and, and they, they don't repeat it. They repeat it and they keep doing it over and over again. So the idea of, oh, that guy's gone through a lot of adversity, so he's tough. No, he's not. He's tough if he's gone through the adversity and grown from it. Yeah. Um, so to your point, if we go and take a challenge and we add to add value to ourselves from it rather than subtract from us. I think that's that's massive. I want to find out about what life's like for you overseas. So you talked about cigarettes in the arena. I know, like, <laughs> like, like some teams overseas don't pay on time. There is, uh, it's just a different lifestyle. Um, yeah. What was your mindset when you were there? And and you mentioned that it kind of helped you when you came back. But just give us some more insight into that experience for you because there's some adversity in that in that story and in that journey. You know, one of the best things about being over there is you're free to form your own opinion because when you're outside of America, outside of this culture, I'm not watching TV every day because there's nothing but soccer on and shows that I don't understand the language. So I've, I've read a lot. It gave me a chance to really think about perspective and you know what would I have done differently? What did I need to change? What did I need to keep doing? And I think just being over there, it, it allowed me to broaden my perspective and ask some really difficult questions before I came back. And more, more importantly than anything, most importantly, I had to ask myself, what was it going to take for you to get back to loving basketball again? Because some level, being in the NBA, you stopped loving the game. The game became a business. It became a source of income. It became a way to be popular or whatever else had happened. The core foundational part of why you picked up the ball had gotten lost. And being over there in front of these people who don't know me, don't care, are smoking cigarettes and could care less about who won or who lost. Well, I, no, I, I take that part back. They didn't care about who won or who lost. But just not really, there's no connection between us. It made me ask myself, so what are you playing for? If you're just playing for the money, then just go ahead and do that. But that's not what you picked up the ball for. So I think being over there and being in a different culture and being around different people and having a chance to really ask myself some hard questions, the love of the game became the most important thing to me again. And that's when I started to see myself not only grow as a person, but my game, I felt, started to show itself the way I felt like I could all along. Yeah, passion is, passion is one thing, uh, but passion is always around when things are easy. So it's yeah. easy to be passionate when things are easy. But the question is, what happens when things get hard? And true passion won't expire. It'll keep going. If it's really your passion, it, it won't expire. Self-doubt will expire. Uh, fame will expire. Uh, money might expire. I mean, there's other things that can expire, but passion can carry you through. But I think what also people miss is purpose. 
Because um, when you can connect passion and purpose, uh, when those are aligned, um, your passion, that flame just keeps burning and the purpose is the foundation underneath of it. And I think a lot of pro athletes, they do, they lose their purpose and therefore then lose their passion. And, um, and I've talked to so many pro athletes who I ask them, why do you play your sport? And they look at me and they're like, yeah, that's a really good question, Brian. And I'm like, man, you talk to the media every day. Like you're, you're getting asked questions all the time. You think that's a good question, but it is true. Like a lot of times people lose it. And by the way, it's not just basketball players. I have friends on wall street who have lost their purpose for doing what they're doing. Uh, I've lost, I have known doctors who have lost their passion or their purpose. Um, it, it, it runs the gamut. It's life. Um, but we need to be aware of what that passion is and what that purpose is. And when we find ourselves going uh, off the grid, um, we need to go back and, and ask ourselves those questions, and that gets us back on the path that we want to be on. But it, it's, it's hard to do. It's not easy to just stay on course with that stuff. Um, and we all have moments that cause us to go off course. There's, yeah. there's no doubt. There's a part, the, the, the most powerful part of the book, The Inner Game of Tennis, for me, what really caught my attention, there's a point at the end of the book where he's talking about he, he goes out to play in a tournament, and he's about to play somebody in the first round, and he's really nervous because he's afraid. What he connects losing the match to is if I lose the match, then it means something about me as a person. Mm. So he goes out and he's playing the match, and he's struggling in the beginning, and he's the guy. Other guys beating him, and he's he's like feeling worse about himself. He's starting to, you know, think negatively, and he's he's going through this cycle. And then all of a sudden, he says during the match, he goes, "What's the worst thing that could happen?" If I lose this match, I go home. My friends ask what happened. I lost the match. Life goes on. So he's like, so why are you so worried or afraid of losing? Why are you so anxious about whether or not you lose or win this match? Just play. If you, if you win, great. And if you lose, you go home and nobody cares. He comes back to win the match. Yeah. So he's sitting there. He's like, dang, what happened? He's like, I kind of stopped caring as much. So then he plays in another round, and he plays against a really good opponent, and he loses, but he's overjoyed. And he said what he realized was, my biggest fear wasn't losing. My biggest fear was I didn't want to play and lose, but know I could have done better. And what he connected it to was, a lot of times, it's this idea that if I lose, like you said about the threat, it means that I'm less than something that something was taken from me, that people are going to look at me as a loser. And he came to the realization is that's not really the case. All I really want is I want to play well and have fun. And the only way I really do that is when I stop being so concerned about who won or who lost. For me, the light bulb went off. Because what I realized was at the bottom of my problems, at the bottom of my biggest issue, why I wasn't performing at the level I could, there was some level of fear that by losing or not performing well, it was a reflection of me as a person. I was afraid of how it would look to other people and how it would make me feel about myself. And when I started to delve into that fear and say, okay, what's the worst thing that can happen if you miss every shot tonight? People are going to say, Dan, you can't shoot. Okay, and then what? That's it. <laughs> That's the worst that's going to happen. You're not going to lose your house. Because at some point, we, we connect all of these fears to 
I'll miss all my shots. They'll stop paying me. They'll cut me. I'll lose my house. I'll lose my car. My light bill won't get paid. I'll be homeless and be back on my mom's couch. So we've concocted this whole story that feeds into this fear that makes us afraid because we see it as a threat. When I turned it around and said, okay, what's the worst thing that could happen? You miss all your shots. Let's say they do cut you. Then what? I go home and find a real job. Okay, then what? Then I have to make regular whatever money that is, and I pay my bills. That's where you started. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you started off there. There's a, there, there's a concept of, like, basketball is what you do. It's not who you are. Yes. And I think for all of us, we have mixed as a society, like what we do and who we are as being the yeah. same thing. So one of the things I always ask athletes, I say, all right, Rob Gronkowski, tight end, uh, all pro tight end for the New England Patriots, making lots of money, um, you know, is, you know, winning championships, all that. At the same time that he came in the NFL, there was another guy who was an all pro tight end for the New England Patriots, making a lot of money. You know, they were do- him and Aaron Hernandez were doing the same thing. Right. Uh, Rob Gronkowski and Aaron Hernandez were doing the same thing. If you looked at, who, you know, what they were doing, it was similar. Yeah. But who they are is completely different people. Right. Uh, you know, Rob is on party boats with girls and doing whatever the heck he does. And Aaron Hernandez went to jail for murder and ended up committing suicide. Um, yes. You know, who they were as people, what their character is, is completely different and i think as a society we overvalue the resume and undervalue the eulogy um and there's a great book that talks about that called the road to character um david brooks david brooks like he talks about this is why i love leron leron man the the guy is like just reads so (laughs) many books when we met we were just like bouncing books off of each other he gave me a book i gave him a book but yeah that book talks about a eulogy versus a resume and like to me the eulogy items are are so much more valuable and if we take care of the eulogy items the resume will take care of itself if we take care of the resume items that doesn't necessarily mean that the eulogy items get taken care of um so our character it matters so much i want to i want to find out about the next sort of cycle in your life where you became a coach and yeah. what that was like, what that perspective was like for you um, and, and being in those shoes. And what were some of the things you saw as a coach that maybe you didn't see as a player? Yeah. You know, it was funny. It went 360. You know, I came in the league as a player and trying to figure out my niche and trying to find my niche. You're 21 years old. A lot is happening. You're, you're on the biggest stage in the world in terms of basketball. And then I find myself coaching 21-year-olds, 20-year-olds, 19-year-olds. And I think the experiences that I went through from playing in the NBA to being out of the NBA and playing overseas, coming back to the NBA, being injured, being a guy who was the 12th, 13th, 14th guy, being a guy who started games, being a guy who's been an energy guy. I think all of these experiences were just packaged in a way so that now I have the ability to relate to guys on so many different levels. So as a coach, I was able to talk to a guy who was – a star because I had a relationship with Kobe. I've had a relationship with Gilbert Arenas. I know Michael Jordan. But I saw I could talk to the guy who's the 15th guy who's trying to make the team because I've been in that position too. So I think the coaching thing was really just me being able to relate to guys and share my experiences and a lot of the stuff that me and you have talked about, being able to try to simplify for guys so that they can perform at a high level, getting them to understand that what you do and who you are are not the same that when you step on a basketball court, you have to remember why you started playing the game. Because along the way, what you've picked up 
are these cultural things that make you separate from what started the journey. The, the idea that you need money, the idea that you need a car, the idea that you need fame, the idea that you need this to be happy or you need... No, what really makes you happy at the end of the day should be the love of the game and the joy that you started with. Those other things are a result of what you started with. When you lose that part, the other stuff becomes meaningless. So being able to share these experiences with young guys, try to simplify for them, helping them perform consistently by saying things like, let's just focus on the things that are within our control. You can play hard. You can compete. You can know your assignments. You can know where to be, when to be there. If you focus on those things, the instinct will take over the rest. And so those experiences that I went through and by reading some of the books that I was able to read, I think were really instrumental in me being able to relate and connect with guys who are coming into the league and trying to find their own niche. Was there a person that really turned you on to the mental side uh, besides Grant? Uh, you said Grant sort of gave you that book. Did he start you on that journey, or was there someone else who also guided you? I think Grant started with that book, but I think being able to be around Kobe was what really just really pushed me to find out, okay, what is this? Because I've never been around a guy who mentally was as tough, as confident, and as he was so unconcerned with the opinions of other people as in regards to his game. And I don't mean that to say he doesn't care. I just don't think he cared enough about their opinions to override his opinion of himself. I think we all at some level care about what people think. I just think we tend to give people in our lives more weight than our own opinion. And he was not like that. His opinion of himself weighed more than other people's opinions of him, which made it easier for him to play that style because even though as his teammates you may not like it, he wasn't necessarily as concerned with how you thought as what he thought. And so that experience and being around somebody like that it really drove me to find out how do you get to that point. It is an amazing thing when you talk about Kobe um, and the way he interpreted things and the way he looked at things. If I were to ask you, Laron, to have a conversation with your best friend tomorrow, and I would say, all right, you're just going to have a conversation with your friend. He is a little down because he's not performing as well as he could have. I would imagine that your message to that guy would be like, hey, man, you've got this. You're good. Man, you can play. Like, you can do this. You can do what you need to do. Like, dude, you're, you're capable. You're competent. And the conversations that we would often have with our best friends are the conversations that we need to have with ourselves. Um, and so I would imagine that that optimism that someone like Kobe would have or MJ or that, that narcissism or that ridiculous self-belief is similar to how we would talk to our best friends. They were just doing that to themselves. And yes. so there was actually cool research that showed that when we do talk to ourselves, like we would talk to our best friends, we are so much more supportive of ourselves. And there is a time to be self-critical. Uh, there's a time to break ourselves down and reflect, but that time is not between the lines. That time is not uh, when we are performing. Uh, Lady Gaga, when she gets on stage, that's not the time for her to question whether her voice is good and whether she can dance. That's the time for her to own the stage. Uh, Beyonce is like one of my favorite philosophers. Uh, there's a quote from Beyonce where she says, <laughs> she says, I'm nervous when I'm not nervous. If I'm nervous, it means I'm going to have a great show. 
That's her interpreting that, hey, I'm going to feel some butterflies, but when I get on there, I'm going to own it. And you look at someone like Beyonce or someone like Michael Jackson, they're very soft-spoken or they were very soft-spoken. But when they got on stage, they weren't soft-spoken anymore. Right, yeah. Completely transform. It's interesting you use a great word. It's been rumbling around my head is how we interpret things. And I, I, I remember a story. There was a basketball player, he's a Hall of Famer, I forgot which which one. They said he was out talking to a group of people one day, and he said, you know, when a game starts, let's say I go, I start 0 for 5, I get excited because I'm a 50% career field goal shooter. So if I miss my first five, I know that the next five are going in. It's interpretation. And it's like, how do we interpret situations and what the story is that we tell ourselves often is going to play a huge role in how we move forward. Most guys start 0 for 5 and they're like, oh, good. Uh Uh-oh. Uh-oh. But when you're truly confident and you interpret it the right way, you look at it and say, well, shoot, it can't get any worse. And being around Kobe, that was the one thing that was consistent. He interpreted negative things as a way to say that it must be going to change or it's going to get better. I remember we were playing Seattle and he came in at halftime and I think he was six for 19 from the field. And I was like, you know, trying to be the good teammate. I'm like, Hey man, you know, it's going to be all right. You're going to get it going. You know, we trust you. We know you're going to get it going. And he looked at me and he said, prop, I'm not worried about that. (laughs) He said, I work too hard for the ball not to go in. (laughs) And sure enough, in the second half, he went off and we won the game and he had 40-something. And after the game, I'm sitting there going, he was really serious about that. He was not concerned that he was 6 for 19 because he really believed all the work ethic and the preparation that I've done, eventually at some point, the ball is going to go in the basket. And that was, you know, those type of situations and stories and experiences I saw sitting next to him, it really just you know, got me so intrigued and curious about how can a person perform at this level and use that mindset in a positive way. What I love about that story is he looked, he was internal. He wasn't external. He wasn't looking out or looking for someone to help him. He was saying, I've got this. I know how to handle this. I've been here before. I know what it's like, and I'm going to find a solution rather than make make an excuse. Um, The other thing that really, I, I, First of all, I think you hit the nail on the head. When people ask me, like, what's the most important skill for a, an athlete to have, I always say for them to be able to interpret things. Uh, the way in which we interpret the world uh, is so immensely valuable. Because like you said, bad things happen, self-doubt happens, criticism, uh, people are going to pass away, disease, injury. I mean, no one goes through life unscathed. No one, like, goes through life without some bad stuff happening. But how we interpret things is everything. Um, And to to that point, Bill Russell used to throw up before games. Um, This is the most winning... Dominant, one of the most dominant players ever in the NBA used to throw up a Ross Strickland, by the way, but that's a whole nother story. That, that, (laughs) (laughs) we can get into Rod Strickland another day. It's second time he's made the, uh, he's coaching now, man. He's, he's crazy. He's coaching. I said, Rod, of all people, you, (laughs) he knows, he knows. Um, 
But uh, but yeah, Russell would throw up because he'd be nervous, and then he'd be like, okay, now I'm good. Uh, Drew Brees before the Super Bowl talked about getting butterflies and you know being super nervous, but he used those butterflies and channeled them into excitement. Um, you know, there's there's so many people that go through that, but they interpret it a different way. So. I agree wholeheartedly with you that the interpretation is what it's really all about. And the more we learn that, the more we control the interpretation. We don't control the thought that comes into our head. Make no mistake, thoughts and feelings, we don't control. Like, no one wants to have a a doubtful thought. Those come, and we haven't figured out in science how to control thoughts. Uh, We don't. Now, you can prime yourself and set your mind so that you're less likely to maybe get self-doubt, but at the end of the day, thoughts and feelings, no, like, those we don't control, but we do control action. And the step between thoughts and feelings and action is interpretation. And, and to everything that we've talked about, that's why self-talk matters. Because if we get a thought or we get a feeling, but we use our own self-talk to interpret it a certain, a certain way, then we take the action that we want to take. So that's the cycle and what it looks like. And I would say thoughts and feelings have a shelf life. They'll expire. But if you dwell on them, if you sit on them, if you focus on them, then they're going to get bigger and bigger. And now they are consuming you and they are paralyzing you. And that's when you run into trouble. Yeah. So I think it's uh, it's also important for me when I talk to athletes to get the point across to them. The more doubt you have to me indicates the more you're worried about things that are outside of your control. We typically doubt things when they're outside of our control. You can't control if you're going to make shots. It's outside of your control. Now, we want to go into every game thinking, I'm going to play great. I'm going to have a great performance. But what you can control are your preparation. You can control the intensity in which you play. You can control your attitude. And you can control the type of your interpretation of events. Those are the things that are within your direct control. You're not going to have a lot of doubt about something you have direct control over. When you start to doubt is when your focus goes beyond the things that are in your control. Peyton Manning says, uh, pressure is only there when I'm not prepared. Mm -hmm. Because I think in his mind, he's saying, hey, what I can't control, I have control. Now it's just a matter of going out on the field and letting instinct take over. And so a lot of the times with athletes, what I try to get them to hone in on is let's focus on the things that are within our direct control. And then once the game starts, your instincts will take over from there. But when you're starting to focus on, I want to make every shot, I want to, you know, grab every rebound, I want to be perfect in how I play, anxiety is soon to follow because now you're trying to focus on stuff that are outside of your control. Yeah, and with those non-controllables, they're usually future thoughts. So they're usually like... You, you mentioned earlier, like, what if, what if this happens? What if, uh, you know, or I gotta, the baseball players are calling the goddess, I gotta get a hit, or I gotta get out of this slump, uh, rather than this is something I get to do. Uh, those are two very separate things. And that's why, and we've talked about this, that's why meditation is a great tool, because yeah. it trains you to sort of acknowledge and accept without judgment those future thoughts and learn where the mind goes and that it often does go to the future and bring it back 
to the moment and back to where your feet are. And uh, it's why meditation is a great tool to have in our toolbox. It's not for everybody. And, you know, some people will find other tools that work for them. But uh, it's something I at least will introduce to my clients and say, hey, this is a tool that you can use if you are someone who is very future thinking, which, by the way, being future thinking isn't all bad. By the way, worrying about losing your job isn't all bad. Like, if you don't have some of that fear, if I don't have any fear, then I'm going to drink and drive, shoot up heroin, and eat a bunch of cheese and eat a bunch of, right? Right? Like appropriate fear is, is necessary. Like I got to look both ways before I cross the street. That is, you need some of that. It's healthy. Um, so it's not all bad, but you need to be aware of, okay, my mind is going to that futuristic thought and I need to bring it back to this moment because all I can control is what I do at this moment. And so I think it's blending the controllables with also the present. And when you do that really well, that's when the flow state starts to come out. That's when mastery starts to occur. That's when the beautiful stuff, that's when greatness starts to occur um so you coach in, you coach in orlando um did you like coaching um what would you like about it what didn't you like about it I, I love coaching in the sense that you get to see the game from a different perspective as a player i think when you're coaching you can see subtle things that sometimes as a player you didn't pay much attention to from a game plan perspective who's disciplined in that who's not Watching the film after a game is really interesting because you sometimes have thoughts in your head that you thought something happened one way. Then you go back as a coach and you look at the film and it's like, ah, that was kind of different. I'm glad I didn't say anything, you know. So Dean Smith had a rule that he never commented on a player's performance until after he watched the film. And as a coach, I realized why. <laughs> you can come in the locker room and let a guy have it, then go back and watch the film and realize it wasn't even his fault. So I think coaching just gave me a different perspective to see the game, gave me an opportunity to see how guys respond uh, to different types of coaching, whether it's hard coaching, whether it's a little bit more pat on the butt, you know, do guys respond more to talks? Do they respond more to punishment? You know, all the type of things that you, as a player, you didn't necessarily have a chance to voice. Now as a coach, you see it, you're in the meetings, the decisions that are being made, you're, you're a part of. So I think that was good for me. The thing about coaching that was hard for me was coaching is such a minute by minute thing. Coaches live in perpetual state of uneasiness and anxiety. And paranoia, right? Paranoia. Yes. yes, and that was the part. It didn't really fit with where I was mentally. You know, I'm a big picture guy. I'm a guy who says what I'm really concerned about is how, how does our team look from a standpoint of confidence, of chemistry. Yeah, we lost the game, but I felt like we grew tonight. And, you know, last night we won, and I felt like we took a step back. So I think for me, I'm always looking at it from a big picture standpoint. And most coaches, they just don't have the luxury in their mind to do that, you know, because coaches get fired instantly. So uh, those are the things about it that weren't great. But from an overall standpoint, I thought it was a great experience. So, you know, I, I think coaches have to, you know, that's why I love what Steve Kerr does. You know, he talks a lot about staying in the moment. And I think for coaches, that's a hard thing to do because they're thinking about job security. But to me, if you really want job security, staying in the moment is probably the best way to do it because you make better decisions when you're in a, in a right state of mind. When you're anxious or worrying, sometimes your decision-making reflects that, and it doesn't always end up to be the best, best decision. Yeah, just on the Golden State thing, um, so first of all, I think Mark Jackson doesn't get a, enough credit. Like, he's not a perfect coach by any means, and, you know, I think – he, he was there at a time where he was able to instill confidence in Steph and Clay um, 
that they needed at that time. And they weren't going to win a championship and they didn't need the attention to detail and the culture that I think Steve brought um, then. They did now. Um, but, you know, Jax, everyone that I have ever talked to, they're like, he was a preacher. Like, he's going to get in there and he's just going to tell you guys, I believe in you. You can do this. And that was his way of doing things, was lifting people up. Now, he had shortcomings in other areas, uh, like all of us do. Um, but uh, to your point about Kerr, I think one of the reasons that worked so well is because Jax helped bring in a Steph and a Clay, who, by the way, didn't go to big time universities, uh, were passed over in the NBA draft they weren't top five picks um they both had question marks you know clay for smoking weed in college and and getting in trouble steph for his size um people weren't sure that clay could create off the dribble steph we all know about this okay but but jack really helped uh, mark jackson really brought those guys into the nba and said no you can play at this level and you can do it really well and then that mantle was passed to kerr and you mentioned kerr's desire to say in the moment one of his values is mindfulness like yes. that is that's a value that he believes core in value. it's a core value and joy is another one. and joy is another one so um yeah i think that's why i think he's so lovable and and the the humility that he has um is also pretty special when you're watching that award ceremony and he is in the back and it's not just because he's acting he, he actually does like to be in the back uh, and behind the scenes. And um, it's interesting as you talked about your journey. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that makes Kerr special as well is he's played uh, alongside Jordan, but he also has been the last guy on the roster. He was barely recruited out of high school and went to Arizona, but then started at, you know, point guard university in a lot of ways. Um, so that he's able, I think, to probably relate to a lot of his guys. And that's, I'm sure, what makes him a special human uh, and a special yeah. coach as yeah, well. Ab- absolutely, man. Yeah. I- I hate to harp on this, man. I just don't think people in general, but athletes especially, really understand how important the joy factor is. You talked about taking it back to your childhood and when you were a child. And I just, even on this conversation, thinking about when I was 11 and 12 and 10 and just sitting at the playground all day long playing and the trash talking and, you know, just the joy that you have well, you're not. You don't care about anything but the game. Were you Jordan? Were you Jordan when you were on that playground? I'm just curious. You know, when I was younger, I actually was Isaiah Thomas. You were Isaiah. Because I, I always kind of thought they were the underdog. He's a small guy. You know, these other guys are jumping out the gym or Magic 6'10 and running the point. And Isaiah is a six-one guy with, with the bad ankle hopping around. But... I just think people really underestimate the power of joy and how joy really is an antidote to worry and anxiety. Because when you're joyful, you're at a point where you're just grateful for the opportunity to compete. And so it really relieves you of this pressure to perform because you're just grateful for the opportunity to compete. And so I just don't want people to miss that, man, that if you really want to be a truly great athlete, you look at the great athletes of our time. You look at a Jeter. You look at a Kobe, you look at a Mike, uh, you look at a Brady. They always talk about playing the game like children, like kids, like this joy they have. Brett Favre, you know, we all remember Brett Favre running around crazy when he threw a game when he touched down. And I just think people have to really hone in and understand how important that is uh, to perform it at anything at a high level. It's just the joy of it. 
So there's two things I'll pull on. One, my guy was John Stockton. Uh, <laughs> and my buddy and my buddy was Carl. This is at its best. Yeah. My guy was Carl and my buddy was Carl Malone and we're running pick and rolls nonstop. Um, but but uh, yeah, I worked with a basketball team, high school basketball team once, and the coach would go over all the bullet points, the scout, everything for the for the game. And then he'd always end his his conversation with his players by saying, Today is the most important game of the year. And go out and play with joy. And they did. They always played with joy. They always came out. They pressed the entire game. They, they flew around. And, you know, they played with such joy. And I think that is something that stuck with me is I agree with you. I think you have to play with joy. The other thing that I think is so important that you hit on is gratitude. Um, so the Blue Angels who fly these airplanes, you know, hundreds of miles an hour uh, next to each other. And they're literally putting their lives in danger every time they go up in the air. Um, they are very self-critical. So at the end of the day, they'll come around, they'll sit around a table, and they'll critique themselves. Oh, I should have been a little bit on the left, and my walk out to the plane wasn't quite in sync, and they'll just go through all the different things that they could have done better. And at the end of it, they'll say, and I'm going to fix it, I'll fix the issue, and I'm glad to be here. And so they always end this harsh self-critique by reminding themselves that they're glad to be there, and that being a Blue Angel is an extreme honor, and that they've worked their entire career to try to become that. And they have brothers and sisters who are flying overseas under enemy fire. And so they always want to remind themselves that this is something they're choosing to do. And that they're glad to be here. And yeah. to your point, if you can combine joy with gratitude, stress will completely reduce. It's very hard to be joyful and grateful and stressed at the same time. Yeah, exactly, man. Pete Carroll talks a lot about that. It's, uh, he wants his teams oh. to play with joy and passion because he thinks it really helps relieve the pressure and anxiety. You know, you look at him on the sidelines. I mean, he coaches with joy. Yep. And I think that's how you build sustained success is when you have a gratefulness for what you have an opportunity to do. And if you have the opportunity to compete at the highest level, you should be grateful. You should be joyous. And to me, that's when athletes are operating at their highest level. We, we've seen it with LeBron. That first year in Miami, he wasn't playing with joy. He had this burden that he felt he had to win, and it affected his play in the biggest stage. And then he came back the next year, and he tried to be angry, and that didn't really work. And I think we, we, we've seen from him over the last three to four years is he's accepted this opportunity that, you know what, I'm going to play and have fun and enjoy the game. I am incredibly blessed and, and any, anything else only adds stress and anxiety and worsens my performance. And I think that's why we've seen him grow as a player because he's gotten rid of this whole, if I don't win, I'm a loser mentality thing. So I just, you know, I, I love talking about that. Awesome. Well, let's finish up with just let, it, let us know what you're doing now with Jordan Brand. And uh, also if people want to find you and learn more about you, where are the best places for them to do that? Uh, I'm fortunate I got to meet you. Um, and <laughs> And like, I, you know, I, we could do this talk for probably, we could do like a marathon, like Let's a 20. weekly thing on yeah, yeah, this is just so fun for me. Um, and, you know, LaRon's a few years older than me. So I joked when I met him that I used to go to Maryland basketball camp and he was, 
he was playing uh, at University of Maryland. So he, he's now like an old head in my mind. Like, like, like I grew up watching Laron um, play, play for Maryland basketball. Um, but uh, where can people find you? Where can they learn about you? And uh, if you want to promote anything, you have an open mic to do so. Man, you know, I was, I'm, I'm really not on social media anymore. I used to be. I'm, I was on Twitter at uh, Profit Forever. Uh, I still check in every once in a while and see if anything interesting is going on. The last year or so, I've been working with Jordan Brand, so that's been the focus of my life is trying to get myself situated there. I get to work with some of the best athletes in the world. Obviously, uh, the standard that Michael Jordan sets, we only have the best and the brightest. And so a lot of times I end up having these type of conversations. That's why you know meeting you and having these opportunities to talk about these things, it helps me and it broadens my perspective and it gives me food to think about and to chew on. So I'm grateful for the opportunity to have these type of talks and you know, I'm just grateful that we met and our, our relationship, I think, will benefit both of us uh, because as I move forward in this opportunity, I think I'm only going to be able to, to help these guys, you know, learn from my mistakes and my experiences and give them some tools, hopefully, to make their athletic careers as joyous and prosperous as they want it to be. Well, Laurent, it's... As I said, it feels like I've known you my whole life, but uh, it's been good to know you for for a week or so. Um, and I appreciate you taking the time. I know you've got a lot going on in your world and your life right now, uh, so I wish you all the best with all that. And you know, I know we will be texting uh, a lot, a lot in the future. And uh, I'm just very grateful to get to know you, and and very really happy that you're willing to share your story, your journey, and and some of the stories along the way. Nah, no question about it, man. I'm grateful to have me, and I, I look forward, hopefully, to coming back again. Awesome. Thanks, Laurent. Mm-hmm.